Good morning. The Old Testament reading this morning is Psalms 119, verses 1 through 16, page 650 in the Pew Bibles. But before we begin, please pray with me. O Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light for our path. So by your spirit, light our way as we read your word. Give us eyes to see all that you want us to see. Give us ears to hear all that you want us to hear. And give us hearts that might be opened and transformed at the reading of your holy word. In your son's precious name we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. The word is a lamp to my feet. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimony, who seek him with all their heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all of your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Thank you, Gary. Good morning again. As we read and finish the epistle of Paul, First Thessalonians, the epistle of Paul to the church at Thessalonica, I have to confess, sometimes people say that life imitates art. Well, I also say life imitates preaching. The end of Thessalonians, that fifth chapter, is about being ready for the Lord's return, being prepared. Um, it's about, uh, are you, do you realize that the second coming is real? That's what we talked about last week. That are you ready for Jesus to come back? And are you telling others to be ready? Uh, and we kind of lived that out last Sunday. After I preached here, went home, my wife began to have a little pain in her stomach area. And then that night she had some intense pain. And you know, my wife being a nurse, she kind of diagnosed herself and figured out as the pain moved over to her left quadrant that she probably had appendicitis. Well, if that had been me, I would have like called 911, got an ambulance, told Facebook friends, asked the whole church to be there, and would have panicked and just ran out the door. Well, my wife is a prepared person. She's ready. She got up Monday morning. She went to work and gave her employees a list of instructions of all these things to do. Told her manager a list of instructions. Met the dogs, all the things, a list of instructions for me. She got the house in order. And about 6 o'clock, she said, okay, let's go to the hospital. I'm like, are we having a baby or something? I'm like, how are you so calm? So we go to the ER. She checks in. They take her back. They scan her, sure enough, inflamed appendix. She's going to have to have surgery that night. So we stay at BSA. And then the next morning, 7.15, Dr. Kirkendall comes in. We pray over her. She goes and gets out in about 30 minutes, and 
That afternoon she goes home. And my, my wife is a prepared person, I tell you. It was, it was, it was impressive. I would, would not recommend that, by the way. But she had a set of instructions. And as we look at this last um, part, the end of 1 Thessalonians, Paul had just talked about being ready. Jesus is coming back. But he said, I need to leave you a set of instructions. What do we do in the in-between time? Between the time of you coming to know Jesus and him returning, are you going to be with him? What do we do in the meantime? And that's what's great. Uh, All scripture is great. But that is what this great set of final instructions are at the end of this epistle we've been studying. So if you look with me at 1 Thessalonians, again, chapter 5, the second part of this day of the Lord issue. We're going to start in 12 and read to the end of uh, the letter and just listen to Paul's set of instructions because these Thessalonians were sitting around and waiting for Jesus to come back and they weren't doing what they were supposed to do. So he sent this list of instructions. Read with me, along with me. 512. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and over you in in the Lord and they admonish you. Esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Also, be at peace among yourselves. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. Always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Then comes the climax, the real crux of this whole letter. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And then he closes. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the churches. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the word of the Lord. So it's a set of instructions. It's Paul's last, famous last words to this church before uh, he comes back or writes another letter. And he answers a great question. If we know Jesus and we're saved, what do we do between the time when we meet him or he comes back? And the question is, if Jesus is really coming back, what are we supposed to do in the meantime? What what are our instructions? Last week, we talked about this amazing story of these 13 Thai citizens, these 12 boys, their soccer team, lost a mile back in this deep cave in Thailand, and how they were going to die back there in the darkness, starve to death. And then these two British uh, divers had found them. Ten days, they looked for them and found them, and they began the rescue. They gave them water and lights and food and blankets, and they were keeping them alive on, the, on that shelf. But then they needed to figure out how to get them out. And as we were speaking, as we were worshiping last Sunday, they rescued all of them. They all made it to safety, to the hospital. It's, a, it's, it's miraculous. And again, what does it have to do with this part of Paul's teaching? Well, again, it's such a great allegory to the gospel. The scripture says that we're just like those uh, 13 kids stuck in that cave, that we have a thing called sin. And then because of sin that we all have, we're stuck in the darkness. 
We are lost and we are wandering in the darkness. And the more we wander, the deeper and the, the more lost we get. And we are not able to save ourselves. Not by being good, not by being moral, not by going to church. But we need someone to save us like those Thai children. And the scripture says someone did save us. That Jesus Christ became, he, he scuba dived for us. He, he was our rescuer. The scripture says that Christ, although he existed in the form of God, Philippians, he did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, became a man, put on flesh and bone, put on a scuba suit, a human scuba suit, became flesh and bone, and was obedient even to death upon the cross. He risked his, gave his own life like one of those tie divers. He gave his own life. And now he, he was crucified, and now he seats at the right hand of the throne of God. And someday at every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. That we're in the same place. That we may be saved if you know Jesus. And, and, and Christ has found you and saved you and given you bread and light and water. But we still need to be completely rescued. What do we do to get to that final day? Be prepared for the coming of Christ. We do with these Thai kids. We practice. Once they found those Thai kids, they didn't just take them out immediately. They weren't sure how to, say, how to get them out. Get them to the light. They thought perhaps they would just wait because the monsoon season is coming. It's there now. It would have flooded the whole cave, except where they were. They were going to leave them there for a couple of months, feed them. They thought that can't be healthy. They, they may get sick. So they didn't do that. They thought about drilling down from the top, drilling into the cave and trying to take them out there, but it was impossible. Too far down. Rocks are too hard. So they didn't do that. They decided they were going to take them out by scuba diving. They decided they were going to have them, tether them to one diver to another. You can see it here. And they were going to tether them together. I think I have a picture of that. They teach them how to scuba dive. Do we have that graphic? It says that they taught them uh, the five days before. They waited for about five days. And these boys had never learned how to swim. And they've never used scuba. So for five days, they had them practice swimming. They had them practice wearing an oxygen mask. And then when they were ready last Sunday, they put a diver in front with his own tank and hold the tank of the young man, the, the kid in the middle, the young man with a mask and diver back, and they had him on a cord. And all they had to do was swim and, and breathe. But they practiced, they practiced, and they practiced. And that's how they got out. Well, that's what Paul's saying. What do we do in the in-between time? As we wait for our own meeting of Jesus or the return of Jesus, is we practice, practice, practice. We practice being more like Jesus. We practice being ready for heaven. We practice being prepared for his return. That's what this is. This is a list of 15 things Paul says, here's some things you should practice. It's kind of like uh, chewing on uh, beef jerky. There's so much in here. But it all kind of conv- crescendos into three major things. A lot of these, someone pointed out, and I appreciate this in Sunday school, that so many of the things he's listed are things you do outwardly. But he comes back to these three things. He says, really the most important are these, these three things inwardly, in your heart. So what are the three most important things that we practice to move from salvation to sanctification, to be ready for Jesus to come back? Well, that's in verse uh, Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Listen to these huge, important things about our heart that we're to practice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. These three foundational Actions, lifestyles. Paul says, practice these. And a couple of footnotes on these, a couple of notes. First of all, we're a little limited in, not the Bible's not limited, but our English translation, we don't have a plural really for you. We use you for singular and plural. We say you. The Greek doesn't do that. 
Someone said Paul needs to learn to speak West Texan. He should be saying y'all. This is really y'all. In fact, a, a cowboy, after I walked out, he said, not only is it y'all, it's y'all all. <laughs> or all y'all is the plural in, in West Texan. All y'all need to rejoice. All y'all need to pray without ceasing. All y'all, all of us uh, need to be thankful. So it's not just to me. Uh, sometimes in our American Christianity, we think everything in the Bible is just about me. It's about us. He's saying church, body of Christ, y'all need to do this. This is what it should look like. This is how we should be practicing. The other thing I wanted to note is people all the time ask me, uh, students I work with, high school, middle school, college, they go, how do I know what God's will is? What is God's will? How do we know God's will? It answers it right here. Here's the, he answers it. He says, this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus, that you do these three things. You really want to know what God wants from you? These three things. Practice, practice, practice. Dive in, put the mask on, deep, uh, breathe deeply of the Holy Spirit, and let's practice these three things. The first one is constant joy. He just says, are you practicing constant joy? G.K. Chesterton, the great British theologian, kind of pre-C.S. Lewis, said this, joy is the gigantic secret of the Christian. It's the gigantic secret of the Christian because no matter what anyone else has, no matter the circumstance, we always have Jesus. And someone said, if Jesus is all you have, Jesus is all you need. No one can take our joy away from us. Christ says this, I've come that you might have life. And that word life there means abundance to the max. John 10, 10, I've come that you might have the fullest joy. The Christian should be the most joyful, the the, the most... People should be dying to get in here. People should want to hang out with us. People should love the joy that we have. It should be overflowing. Christ says, I, my joy, I leave you. Not the joy of the world. Not the cotton candy, fast food, circumstantial, good day, bad day kind of happiness, but real joy. It says that even as Jesus was at the Last Supper in sorrow about his upcoming death, he had joy in his sorrow. Do you and I have joy even when a loved one dies because they know Jesus? Do we have joy even when bad things happen knowing that joy will have its perfect place in our life, that God will use joy, that nothing happens by accident? There's an atheist you're probably familiar with, Frederick Nietzsche. He's the guy that said, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Not so biblical, but it's there. He's also the father of the fascist, the Nazi regime. Hitler based his regime on Nietzsche's uh, anti-Semitism and on his uh, atheism. He says that one day he's just going to drop into one of these churches in Germany and see if this was for real. So Frederick Nietzsche came into a church in Germany and he sat in the back row and he just watched. And he watched them sing and he watched them listen to the sermon and watched them leave the church. He went home and wrote this in his journal. <laughs> I have never seen such a miserable, sour-faced, unhappy group of people in my life. If there is a God, he would be ashamed to be called their God. I got the joy, joy, joy down in my heart. Where? Where is it? What would people say about our church? Are we a joyful church? Are we a complaining church? A whining church? An unhappy church? A fighting church? A gossipy church? Are you a joyful person? Or is the temperature never quite right? The food's never quite delivered on time? The waiter's not quite good enough? The, 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 the electrician? The, are we always, always about the wrong? Are we joyful people? Do you have the joy, joy, joy down in your heart? <clears throat> when I think of joy and what we should look like, I think about this kind of viral video 
of the joy that this kid has when he's getting baptized. Maybe you've seen this. He will demonstrate his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ uh, by willingly being baptized this morning. He's been waiting on this day a long time. Yeah. <laughs> and so, Jordan, upon the profession of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I now baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I think, I think he's got the joy, don't you? I've got the joy, joy down in my heart. I'm doing it. Self-baptism. We're going to not bring, I don't think we're going to bring that here. The joy of your faith. Uh, David says to me, David says in Psalm 51, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Jesus says in Revelation, I, 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 you've been doing so well, but you've lost your first love. Where's that joy of knowing Jesus? Do we have the joy, joy down in our heart? How's your joy? Is it constant? It should be. It, mine should be. What do we need to do to be joyful people? Not people that leave a church and go, those people are miserable. Besides constant joy. Another thing we need to practice. Another way we breathe in the oxygen of the Holy Spirit and we get ready to be led out of this darkness is ceaseless prayer. Is people that pray without ceasing. Jesus said when you pray, not if you pray, or every once in a while before meal or in church, but when you're praying which meant ongoing. You know, the Jesus Christ got up, it says in the scripture, in the morning, before well, it was still dark, before the people began coming, and he prayed. My friends, church, if Jesus Christ, the Lord of the universe, the Son of God, the perfect, blameless Messiah, felt he needed to get up and pray, what are we doing? How can I not be praying? Martin Luther said that when he was, had a pretty busy day, he'd pray an hour. But he said if it's a real busy day, he'd pray for two or three hours. How's your prayer time? How's my prayer time? You know, Lisa and I have these little text prayer, little text conversations. It keeps our life. How's it going, honey? How you doing? Pick up the milk. Uh, <clears throat> where's the money? Where's my cat? Why didn't you make the bed? You know, <laughs> just, I love you. We have these little texts going on, ceaseless conversation. And that's part of our relationship. But the real part is at the end of the day, we come home from work and she sits on the end of the bed and I sit there and we just talk, have these deep conversations. How you doing? What's going on? On a Saturday morning, I get up to have my tea and sit in my devotional chair. She comes and sits down. <clears throat> That's a relationship. That's not a duty. That's not a regulation. How are you and Jesus doing? Sure, arrow prayers. Lord, help me. Lord, I pray for this person. Lord, we need you. Yeah, arrow prayers all day long. But how about those deep conversations with, a, with your best friend? <clears throat> how are you doing with that? How's your prayer life? What are you praying about? Um... Someone said, thou art coming to a king. Huge petitions with you bring. What kind of things are we asking for? What are you praying about? How's your prayer? What kind of prayers are you asking God for? Uh, yesterday, I don't want to embarrass my wife again, but uh, she uh, has an animal business and she has a friend that's a volunteer. And this volunteer is a single mom. Doesn't have a lot of, she's been showing up and helping us and working. And she helped my wife, wife work a party yesterday. And, and then she was leaving, just volunteering. And she began to laugh. My wife just thought, you know what? I can't let you just keep volunteering. I need to pay you something. Here's $100. And the volunteer looked at her and just started crying. She's like, I, I can't thank you enough. Uh, my <clears throat> daughter has to register for Christian's preschool on Monday. And I'm at the end of my budget. And I didn't know where I would get. And I just asked the Lord to help me find $100. Thou art coming to a king. 
large petitions with you. Bring. How's your prayer life? What are you praying for? Is your cell phone, if I'm talking to Lisa, we're having a deep conversation, if I pull out my cell phone, it's over. If I just look down, how rude. Oh, excuse me, I've got to get this, really? Or I, so someone here is more important than the love of my life? Where's your cell phone when you're praying? Where's your computer? Can we turn off the TV? Can we put the cell phone in another room? Can we turn off the radio? And can we have ceaseless prayer? It's the God of the universe. So besides constant joy and boundless things, excuse me, constant joy and ceaseless prayer, the third thing where we need to practice and dive in is boundless things. He says, always being thankful. Are you a thankful person? The people just see you as a thankful person. You thank the waiter. You thank the person that opens the door for you. You thank your teacher. You thank the police officer for giving you a ticket. You're thankful or is there always something wrong? It's always something you don't have. Always somebody that has more. All you see is the things we don't have. All we do as a church is complain and gripe about who we are and what we're not doing versus the wonderful things God is doing. It says that Paul and Silas, in the book of Acts, when they were arrested, taken into prison, hung up, beaten, that when they were released, bleeding, they walked out, and the Bible says this, they praised God and were thankful that they were found worthy to suffer for Jesus. The music's too loud. The preacher didn't say this. My family's doing this. Whining, complaining, nothing's ever quite right. Are we thankful people? Do people see you as a thankful person or someone to just steer clear of? A woman named Ann Voskamp. If you struggle with this, depression, anger, uh, can't get over something, I'd recommend first the Bible, but then this book. A woman named Ann Voskamp. She was depressed. She was cynical. She was a negative person. She had lost people in her life. She was struggling. She was prickly. People didn't want to be around her. And then someone said, why don't you just try every day writing down anything good that you see from God? So she started the journal, started the list. Sunny day today. My husband gave me a kiss. My daughter called me. Great coffee with my friends. I had a flat tire. She began writing down recording. She ended up writing down a thousand things in a short time. And she wrote a book called A Thousand Gifts. It changed her life. She went from being from a grump to being a grateful person. She has a tremendous ministry. It's called A Thousand Gifts. A great book. What about you? Are you grateful? Am I grateful or am I a grump? Am I a grumble? C.S. Lewis says this about becoming a grumble. He says, hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming other people. You're still sort of distinct from it, though. You might even criticize the grumbling in yourself and wish that you could stop it. But there will come a day when you can no longer stop grumbling. Then there will be no more you left to criticize. It will just go on and on. You'll even begin to enjoy it. The grumble will become a grumble yourself. You'll just become one giant grumble going on forever like a machine. It's not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there's something growing which will be hell unless it's nipped in the bud. Are you grateful? Are you a grump? The Holy Spirit can help us with that. So these three practices, constant joy, ceaseless prayer, boundless things. How are you doing on a scale of one to 10? How is the church doing one to 10? Guess what the scripture says? What happens to me if I practice this? If I keep diving in the water, I keep working on the stroke, keep breathing in the Holy Spirit, what will these practices do to me, Paul says? This is the great news. First Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. 
Now may the peace of God himself, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. Paul says that if we practice this, we will be sanctified, which means more like Jesus, more holy, starting to look more like Jesus. The word sanctify means this in the Greek. It's actually a biblical Greek term. We don't use many other places. Sanctify means to make holy, to be set apart for a godly purpose. We've been saved. If you know Jesus Christ, Lord willing, you, you, you're saved. You're going to get out of the cave. You're, you're warm. And Jesus, but sanctification is that following the Holy Spirit, breathing deeply, and practicing swimming. How do we get sanctified? What do we do? Well, it's a couple of great verses. Philippians 6.1 Paul promised, he who began a good work and you saved you will continue to work on you to satisfy until his day. The Holy Spirit will continue to sanctify you, but we can help. Just like those boys, they can't get themselves out, but they can keep breathing and hang on and hang on to Jesus and be led up to the light. Keep swimming. Keep breathing deep. Paul says, <clears throat> Philippians 2.1, work out, 2.12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Of course, God is at work within you, both to work and to will for his good pleasure. I am saved. I have nothing to do with that except believe. But I do have something to do about my sanctification. Practice, practice, practice. Practice doesn't make us perfect. Only Jesus is perfect. Practice makes us more like Jesus. Practice prepares us for heaven. Practice pleases God. There's a true story of a statue that sits in on the shores of New England, kind of past Gloucester where the, the fishing area where the perfect film was, a perfect storm was filmed. But there's a little fishing village. And there's a statue there. It says, this statue is dedicated to the founder of this fishing village, 17-something. It said, this isn't an actual uh, likeness of uh, the founder because we could not find a likeness of him to make the statue. The statue instead was made of his son because his son looks exactly like his father. So to see the son is to see the father. How are you looking? How am I looking? Is my joy and my prayer and my thankfulness showing people what Jesus really looks like? When they look at us, church, First Presbyterian, when they look at you and me, do they see Jesus Christ? Practice, practice, practice. Is your joy constant? Is your prayer ceaseless? Is your thanksgiving boundless? Let's dive in. Let's breathe deeply the Holy Spirit. Amen?